0: Hello, and welcome to Kodish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello, and welcome to the Heroku Kodish podcast. I'm your host today, uh, Rick Newman. And I am here today with Miko Polakowski, who has an upcoming book, Chaos Engineering, Site Reliability Through Controlled Disruption. Miko, thank you so much for joining us, and I wonder if you could uh, just talk a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your
1: upcoming book. Sure. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for hosting me. Um, I, uh, like you said, I just finished my book, Um, it's called Chaos Engineering, Crash Test Your Applications. I think they're going to change the title before it goes to print, but uh, that's a temporary uh, title for now. For those of you who have never heard of Chaos Engineering, you might have heard of things like Chaos Monkey. And uh, probably if you Google the the term, you're going to come up with some kind of uh, slogans like breaking things on purpose and stuff like that. But uh, chaos engineering is just a practice of experimenting on a system, and that system can be anything. It can be big, uh, you know, it can be massive, it can be tiny. Um, you know, you typically hear about the big ones because in the distributed systems, there's just more stuff that can go wrong. And uh, the practice of experimenting on that to increase the likelihood of things uh, recovering the way that you want them to recover and uncovering the things that don't recover the way you want them to recover is basically what we do with chaos engineering. So the deliberate practice of injecting the kind of failure that the real world uh, is likely to inject in your system to verify that your assumptions are correct. It's a really fine discipline. A lot of fun.
0: That sounds like a lot of fun. Who doesn't mind uh, interrupting normal flow with a little bit of chaos now and then? Uh, I know that at certain organizations, certain engineering organizations, they have teams set up specifically for uh, this purpose or maybe broader and larger tests. And that at many, probably most, there are little pockets of individuals or practices that are going through this and using this to validate existing systems. Are, are there a particular roles that are really prominent uh, with chaos engineering or is it is it SRE or is it DevOps or is it more of a kind of a holistic engineer that's doing feature work as well as testing and validation?
1: That's a good question. I think it's, you know, kind of like an ongoing topic. Um, A lot of SRE systems uh, or SRE uh, teams and, you know, DevOps teams, they kind of adapt that as part of their routine because it's uh, extremely handy. You know, if you're an SRE, then you care about reliability and all the tools that help you achieve that are your friends. So. Case engineering can be a really powerful tool to detect issues because, with a pretty small investment of time, uh, you know, if you know how your system is supposed to work, with a pretty small investment of time, you can verify that it actually works. You know, in the in the kind of failure scenarios, the way that you want, uh, what you expect it to work. So. Yeah, I think uh, I'm kind of seeing more and more of uh, of the SRE type of role, people who adopt that, just because it gives them so much benefit. Right. So it certainly
0: seems well suited uh, to SRE or DevOps uh, types or uh, operational roles, but because, as you mentioned, the, the ability to span, the need to span systems seems like this would also be applicable to engineers in general and it might be not necessarily in those specific kind of roles or not even a particular a level of engineer um, but it would really be applicable to in anyone is
1: that right exactly yeah and it also is part of what actually makes it so much fun because you know you're not working on just like kind of one domain and uh, when you're doing this of engineering kind of thing you kind of Cut across different stacks and different technologies and different you know disciplines, languages, whatever, and uh, you kind of have to know enough about them to actually do that. So you learn a lot, and um, like you said, it, it can kind of be applied in in different teams and at different levels.
0: And and where does this live? I mean, we already have. Uh, we might have some kind of hooks on check in for some kind of validation we have unit tests and integration tests and maybe somebody even hacking away at the interface uh somewhat randomly where does where do you see chaos engineering come in and what's the value add there
1: sure so typically that's like the biggest hurdle we have to go through in when you actually need to generate that buy-in uh for for doing chaos engineering because it does sound kind of counterproductive at the beginning so when you do your you know, unit you tests, and you know, you might achieve your hundred percent test coverage, and you know, put your badge on, and 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 be quite content with that. With integration tests, you kind of go a level higher, right? You integrate a, a bigger chunk of code uh, with whatever it is that the external systems and dependencies and whatnot that it's interacting with. And Chaos Engineering is kind of like the way I see it, at least, is that's kind of like a level higher than that. You basically take the systems that run as a whole. So, you know, most of people, when when they hear about Chaos Engineering, they say Netflix because they made it popular with Chaos Monkey and stuff like that, right? Right. Um, So big distributed systems where you have a lot of moving parts and this kind of, interactions between these uh, moving parts are interesting for chaos engineering because you can kind of inject a little bit of a randomness, you can inject a little bit of failure here and there and verify that there are, you know, what kind of effects that compounding kind of effects that might be spreading through your system. So, it's like a, you know an extra layer in my view on top of the unit tests and the integration tests, where you take the systems as a whole and you actually work on live system. Unlike you know a small piece of code in a unit tests or an integration test, you actually take this live systems, and obviously it kind of goes back to this discussion whether you should be doing that in production or not. But the big difference is that you kind of take this live system, even if it's not production, uh, that has real traffic and you actually experiment on the thing as a whole and a lot of things you know a lot of time you discover things that um, you know are not working the way that you expect them to and failure that doesn't recover the way that you want it to and a lot of this is very simple stuff but just finding that has a lot of value and then you know there's obviously the aspect of finding that sooner than later so that you can Uh, you know, react quicker rather than running for a longer time with some kind of bug or some kind of, you know, unusual interaction between components that might produce results that you didn't expect. And also, you know, from like the perspective of the people who actually do the work of fixing these things and from the perspective of people who get cold at night when they break, it's really nice to find this kind of issue during the working hours, right? (laughs) You you do your experiment, you know, when you're in the office and when you have plenty of time left in the day to do something about that, rather than at two a.m. when it takes you like half an hour to even like wake up and actually understand what's going on, <laughs> right, right.
0: And and I can relate, having been on call for a good decade in the first part of my career, and as many have and are uh, still on call, and and nothing tests uh, a playbook or response like trying to look through and figure out an issue yeah. uh, 15 yeah. minutes after waking up and it's before dawn and you're still blurry eyed. And so I can see that that would be a pretty big draw for engineers that are on call and having to deal with regular and frequent off hours calls.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this argument typically just lands so well with whoever was on, a, on an actual on-call rotation once in their life I mean, for me, that's pretty much how we uh, started doing chaos engineering, where, uh, where we did, you know, for the context, I, I basically started on this project where we were uh, working on getting our stuff integrated into Kubernetes, it was like a microservices platform and Uh, I think that was like 2016 and uh, like version 1.2 or something of Kubernetes. So it was pretty cutting edge and pretty unstable. And, you know, fixes were just flowing every day quicker than we could actually look at them. So just to not get cold too much at night and just to, uh, you know, have this kind of uh, feeling that when something happens, you will be able to um, react quickly. That's really was the driving factor, you know. Just getting cold less at night—that <laughs> was enough to, to, to get us into this game. Yeah.
0: Anything that let me see sleep through the night and gets my vote. <laughs> in in your research and talking to other individuals and other organizations, I'm sure you had some uh, great real world world stories uh, about. Failures like this, and maybe on call, but complex and distributed systems—that is really an injection of systemic disruption. Uh, an example of chaos engineering. Do you have any of those stories that you could share?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is you know typically like uh, kind of interesting aspect of this chaos engineering thing because a lot of practitioners they have things that they resolved, but once they resolved them, they don't necessarily want to talk about how um what what this thing was from my experience a lot of these things are that sophisticated it's like you know there's a lot of low-hanging fruit you know typically like the things that get us are restart conditions that didn't exactly align across you know some kind of set of microservices and how they get out of sync because of that when they were starting or stuff like that that if you actually had an idea to go and check that, you could probably just stare at it and 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 figure it out. But for some reason, one or another, uh, you know, it slipped through the review process, and uh, so, you know, someone didn't think about some kind of race condition across the fo- uh, different components. So before you even get like into this complex stuff, when you're resolving, you know, some kind of sophisticated, difficult race condition. Uh, across uh, you know distributed system, you can harvest so much of like the low hanging fruit where just small things add up to a disaster potentially. So yeah, I, I tend to get that question a lot. And and then you know when I was writing the book, they were like. Uh, you know, my publisher was like, hey, can we get like some people to actually talk about the failures that they fixed this way? And uh, it's a little tricky to (laughs) to get people on record on that. (laughs) Okay,
0: that's fair. I don't think I would necessarily want to share and publish the details of some of my uh, past failures either. uh, So I can get that and see where they would be coming from there. A lot of what we've talked about has been large and complex more modern distributed systems and and certainly where microservices and lots and lots of different options for hosting and processing and computing exist i mean is it only for those large and complex systems is there room for chaos engineering elsewhere
1: So I think kind of historically, uh, this entire thing started because of this increasing complexity of, you know, this large distributed systems with a lot of microservices where people moved from a bad, bad monolith to good, good microservices. And all of a sudden they have all kinds of issues, um, you know, on the connectivity. And the retries and and the backups and, you know, thundering herd problems and all of that. So I think there's definitely a lot of uh, stuff that you can harvest just when you have any kind of like distributed system. And, you know, with Kubernetes basically taking the world by the storm, everybody wants to run on it now. So I'm guessing we'll be seeing more and more of that. (laughs) But uh, in my book, I really try to make this, well, what I believe to be a strong case that it really doesn't stop there, that, you know, the same kind of principles and the same kind of mindset can be applied to pretty much anything. Like, I'm going so far down that path in the book that I'm trying to demonstrate that even if you had like a legacy uh, binary that you don't really understand, but you know something about how it's supposed to handle retries. Uh, in one of the chapters, um, um, I'm basically uh, suggesting, well, we we'll go through an example where you you, you basically block uh, some of the syscalls, you some proportion of uh, goals, uh I think there's a rise or something like that, and then you can with something like that, you don't even need to see the code or understand the code base. You know, you can just call it legacy and treat it as a black box, and you can still. Get value because of uh, in you know the fact that you injected that failure lets you actually verify that okay, if this is failing to write on the network or whatever it was, um you see how it actually behaves. Rather than you know reading the code and 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 understanding okay, this is how it's supposed to be working, you actually verify that like an experiment. You know, you, you put your scientist white coat on, uh, you know, rubber gloves and and uh, game on, you actually verify that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. So one of the things that I'm really trying to change uh, about the, the kind of landscape of case engineering right now, uh, if you're just searching on the Internet, uh, is that it really doesn't have to be uh, massive distributed systems. You can get a lot of value by doing reasonably simple things uh, in much smaller things. Other examples, like for example, uh, JVM. One of the cool things that you can do, and you know, it's part of JVM, it's been there forever, is that you can uh, rewrite classes. So you can inject things. You can inject a bytecode, uh, you know, during the runtime, and uh, just do something as simple as trigger some kind of exception that you're expecting to see, and verify that all that, you know, all those dependencies that are built into that, and all those thousands and thousands of lines of code, enterprise ready actually do what you expect it to do uh, in face of some kind of simple failure. And very often you find that, uh, yeah, it almost does it.
0: <laughs> right, I see what you're saying. That's great, too. It's not just these larger systems, but it's really even smaller systems, even that we interact with every day, yeah. that there's a lot there to dig into. And with browser debuggers or anything even more local, uh, we can apply these principles to really any software application that we interact
1: with. Yeah, precisely. Or, you know, it it goes further. You can, if you log into your Gmail or whatever you're using, uh, there's gonna be plenty of JavaScript that's happening there. Why not just go and check what happens when that JavaScript is failing to fetch some data from the internet? Is it actually going to, you know, retry or alert you or tell you the right way? Or is it going to sneak in some stale data? And maybe when you click save, it's actually going to override your stuff with some stale data that it still has in the store. And, um, you know, there are tools for that. It takes like five minutes to, uh, to identify, you know, what kind of calls it's making and then start playing with that. And from there, uh, you can detect things. And, um, yeah. You, you, you'll be surprised how much stuff you find. <laughs>
0: right. So larger systems and smaller, even local apps or black box testing, uh, maybe things that we don't necessarily have access to. So it applies yeah. <laughs> uh, across a number of different domains or different applications. Is that everything? Is that it? Uh, is it applicable to anything else? Is, it, is that where it stops?
1: Well, you know, you're probably asking the wrong person. I just finished the book where I try to give examples of anywhere where you can where you can apply that. I mean, you know, like one of my favorite kind of examples is that when you think about that and I need to give the credit where it's due. I actually got that idea from Dave Rinson at Google in one of his presentations a couple of years ago. When you think about uh, teams, these are just the same kind of distributed systems that you're dealing with with your machines. These are individuals who have their CPUs running at different speeds and have communication issues and you know lost acknowledgments uh, across the network. If you think about that, the distributed systems uh, that are teams uh, are basically the same as uh, the machines that you're dealing with. You have individuals who have their CPUs in their heads and they go at different speeds, they communicate, they miscommunicate, they have lost acknowledgments uh, sent across the network. and. Um, you can basically apply a lot of these things to pretty much the same way. You know, if you inject a little bit of failure here, for example, you tell this person to not acknowledge anything, or even you know, that would be evil, tell them to say the wrong thing on a particular day and see how that information propagates and what happens to the system as a whole. And whether you know the systems in place actually catch that uh, you know whether other or people on the team are like yeah i'll just do that and they erase the whole thing so obviously you have to be careful with this but when you get to the level of maturity when you when, when you can do that with a team that actually you know enjoys that and sees values with uh, with, with this kind of games that you effectively play it's super super fun because it just makes sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can see the uh, the need for high trust, uh, mature organization uh, to be able to try something like that, uh, being able to have uh, individuals or groups that, that you really know, uh, that yeah. know each other well, to be able to test that out. That's a great idea. Uh, I think that'd be a, a fun thing to try out. Probably something I'm going to have to ask uh, my teams about and see what they would think about.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, you mentioned you know, even using a web debugger um, and being able to test local apps. And I guess that'd be kind of some some gray box testing and using tools like that. what, What other tools are there that one could use to kind of start this practice?
1: One of the things that I try to do with the book again is that I'm trying to not rely on any one particular tool too much because a lot of these things, you can do them fairly easily with existing software. So, you know, plenty of these tools um, have been forever available, basically. A lot of the kind of work of chaos engineering is about observability, meaning, you know, actually knowing how to reliably observe some quantum characteristic, some some quantity of the system. You know, if you if you're running an experiment and you can't measure whether it worked or not properly, then it's no good, right? It probably does more harm than than actually anything else. So a lot of these tools are uh, I'm focusing a lot of on, on, on Linux uh, in the book. Uh, they've been there for you know a long, long time, and a lot of people are fairly familiar with them. There are probably some you know less of kind of popular flags and ways of using that, but it's pretty standard stuff. There are obviously uh, kind of new tools coming up, and uh, they kind of cover the more advanced topics. So you know I'm obviously biased because I wrote this one called Powerful Seal. If you search on GitHub. Um, this one is kind of really focused on Kubernetes and and getting like the high level. This is you know what I would like to inject into the system and please validate it this way, uh, where you can just write a simple YAML file and, and get stuff to do it for you automatically. But you don't need to go that way. You know there are also you know commercial alternatives coming up like Gremlin that make it really easy to start. But You know, at the heart of it, it's all about actually understanding why you're injecting that failure to begin with. You know, because a lot of people think that it's just about randomly breaking some stuff and seeing what happens. And there is part of that that you know, it's kind of like close to technique called fuzzing, when you basically randomly do things and see what happens. And this way, you can find a lot of stuff. It's it's definitely useful, and you can kind of do the same thing with case engineering if you don't know where to start. Uh, starting with random is as good as any other start, probably better in some cases. And it's definitely part of it. But then the actual, you know, the the useful work that you do is when you understand the system pretty well. At least you understand how it's supposed to work in theory or some subset of the system that you're interested in. Um, Because then you can kind of reason about the different behaviors and the characteristics of the system that you expect to be there. And based on that, you can come up with experiments to verify that, yeah, okay, well, this characteristic actually is there and uh, it doesn't change uh, during some kind of failure scenario. You see what I mean, right?
0: Yes, I do, yeah. Uh, Fuzzing is a new term for me, but going beyond that sort of random testing is where the real value of chaos engineering uh, comes in. Uh, Using your own understanding of the system and where the edges are or where the failures could present is is really what this is all about. And, And maybe in the former case, where you don't know a lot about it, it can be useful to gain some of that info.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it can be a good start. If you don't know anything, if it's a black box to you, you you might as well poke it and see what happens. Uh, But then, you know, getting to the nitty gritty actually requires understanding that. Right. That just makes sense.
0: Right. So get to know your systems and where those edges are. Yeah. Um, So obviously your book is an excellent resource and, and, and I'm in a bit, I'm a bit old fashioned in that I still love books Are there other books or resources that someone could use to get more familiar with this concept? Where would you go to learn more?
1: Yeah, so uh, there are at least two existing uh, O'Reilly books that you can uh, take a look at. They cover much more uh, the the actual like theory behind like motivation. Why would you do that? And the recent one actually has some pretty decent chapters written by people who applied chaos engineering at their work, and um, that's definitely interesting. Otherwise, a good resource is uh, the awesome uh, chaos engineering list on GitHub. If you Google that, it, it will come up. As far as I know, it's it's probably like the best maintained resource in terms of just a list of various links. So it has tools, it has some uh, blog posts, conferences, and stuff like that. So definitely recommend that one. Um, otherwise, I also have my own uh, newsletter uh, at chaosengineering.news. You can sign up and get an occasional uh, email with some news. I would say that's probably uh, a good uh, a good start. There are also two conferences that you might be interested in. Gremlin has the ChaosConf once a year. And uh, I also run uh, Conf 42 uh, Chaos Engineering that is uh, actually in Europe.
0: Okay, and for those interested in getting started with their local teams, uh, once they've read your book, obviously, and maybe started to explore some of those other resources, are there things they could do to get started and even to share some of their learnings uh, with their local teams
1: yeah that's that, that's a, actually a question that comes up pretty often to be honest like and uh, people tend to uh have a few ideas that kind of repeat themselves either they go the kind of uh, learn and lunch kind of thing when they have a book club and they just kind of prepare a demo and everybody's like oh wow i didn't think of that that's cool let's do something like that or uh a popular approach is that you know something actually breaks and then you can actually say, point your finger at it and say, oh, look, if only we did this little experiment that takes about two minutes to set up, we wouldn't have that problem and you wouldn't be called. What do you think we should do? So, you know, that's that's kind of like a very um, powerful uh, position. And uh, I think a lot of places actually, you know, look at things like that, uh, kind of like in retrospective thinking, okay, how do we prevent things like that from happening again? You, you really don't need a lot of tools. Like you can start with a two-line bash script. That's like a, a common gotcha. Uh, if, you, if you're running a systemd service and you have like restart set to always, uh the always doesn't really mean always. That means that with the other uh parameters on default, that means that if it restarts, I think it's more than five times within a 10 second moving window, then it won't actually be restarted. <laughs> um so for those you know who've run into into stuff like that, you know, all you need to do to fix that is change like one other parameter. Uh, but if you're just reading that, it's very easy to see. Oh, oh, that actually looks like always. So it should always be restarted. So if you take like a bash script that has one line and executes the kill, you know, five times in a ten-second window, uh, you can find uh, a problem like that. And uh, if you have like a technical lead who has a beard, you know, of about half a meter long and you show them to them, um, you can cause some real <laughs> turnout in the, in the team with, with that. Where
0: would we even be without those individuals, bearded or not, right? <laughs> uh, Miko, this has been a fascinating uh, chat and uh, educational, certainly for me, and I'm sure for others. Thanks so much for taking some of your time uh, to be on this episode of Codish and to share a, a bit about chaos engineering. And all the different contexts and ways that it can be useful, teaching us more about our systems, uh, even our teams, apparently. And for those listening, we'll put it in our notes, uh, but you can use the code PODISH19 at the Manning site for a discount on uh, Miko's new book. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.